Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Scott Bonner. He's a PhD student at Oxford University, and we're going to talk about the novel evolutionary views on cancer development and the role of extracellular vesicles. So, Scott, thanks for coming. Hi, Richard. Good to be here again. Tell me about your research and then what got you into it, if you would. Yeah, sure. So I started in the field of extracellular vesicles after I finished my master's degree at the University of Lincoln in the UK. And I joined a now world-leading exosome or EV therapeutic company called Evox Therapeutics that are a spin-out of uh, the University of Oxford and actually the lab that I that I now do my PhD in, Professor Matthew Wood's lab. And I worked as a, a research assistant for Evox for about 18 months or so until I started my, my PhD in, in Professor Matthew Wood's lab. And uh, my, my research, which has been going on for about three years at this point, is mainly focused on um, extracellular vesicle heterogeneity. So just as a, a broad overview of this slightly more specific area of the extracellular vesicle research, so cells release uh, these extracellular vesicles, which are nanoscopic uh, membrane-bound particles. And not every single one of these vesicles is identical to one another. They are very heterogeneous, uh, contain a variety of different uh, proteins that make up their membrane and a variety of different cargos for whatever purpose those vesicles might serve once they're released from cells. And uh, these vesicles are also formed in various different ways as well. So the broad overview of the, the research that I'm conducting is uh, actually looking into the more specific functions of these uh, extracellular vesicles and trying to identify whether there's a particular subset of a vesicle that's 
is able to perform a certain function better than others. And the way I'm doing this is through various different functional assays that's looking at um, T-cell proliferation, for example, and uh, wound healing. It's quite a, quite a common one with the, the stem cell cell line that I'm, I'm using and, and so on. And then from there, trying to characterize the vesicles a bit more to try and see if we can identify sort of markers to better inform industry to isolate certain types of vesicles to improve their therapies. Yeah, to sort of build on okay. this therapeutic okay. EV platform. So I've heard it's very difficult to uh, to get them because I guess they're, you know, what, 50 to 100 nanometers, some bigger. So yep. you can't even see them, I guess, for unless you use electron microscopy. And then in That's the right. isolation of them, I guess, if you do centrifugation, they tear apart. I would think they're very fragile, right? Yeah, that, that's right. They are very difficult to difficult to isolate. There's a, a number of different ways in which we go about doing so. And in fact, I mentioned EV purification is, is actually one of my more preferred, more beloved sort of side projects I, I have going. Tell me the process. How do you get them out of a cell? Like, what's the experimentation sure. of the flow look like? So essentially, we grow a cell line, whether that's a human-derived cell line or uh, animal-derived, be it mice or anything you like, really, that, that has been well-established and, and can grow outside of a, of a human body. And we culture those and expand uh, the number of cells up over time to the point where we then harvest the solution that the cells are grown in and they release their extracellular vesicles into. From there, we then do some centrifugation steps that are able to pellet the larger components of the media that might have come along from the cells themselves and get rid of those impurities. We then, and then this is this is me speaking um, personally about the personal processes that I do, that there might be some variations in the way that other researchers do it, but we then go through to a process called tangential flow filtration, which essentially passes the EV containing solution over a sort of large filter and this actually comes back to the point you were saying about these EVs being very delicate. So instead of the, the force of the uh, solution being applied directly to the filter, what happens is the solution actually flows horizontally across the filter so not to clog the membrane with any of the EVs and not to damage the EVs as well. So the end point of this tangential flow process is that you uh, remove a lot of the smaller protein contaminants that are also co-isolated with the EVs after the harvest. And you concentrate down that medium to a low volume, somewhere around the 5 to 10 milliliter range. And then from there, you, we personally in uh, years gone by have concentrated this medium further using, uh, again, a centrifugation step, which unfortunately, uh, unlike tangential flow, is a little bit more rugged and harsh on on the EVs, shall, shall we say. And uh, it applies a, a direct force of the EVs onto a, uh, a filter to concentrate the, the medium even further down to well, actually, as, as low as uh, sort of hundreds of microliters range if you wanted to. But generally, we concentrate down to about two milliliters. And from there, we move through to a process called size exclusion chromatography, where we pass the EVs into a, a size exclusion column where the EVs uh, flow around uh, beads within a column and are able to be eluted 
faster than smaller proteins which have a longer path to a loop through the column and are able to sort of move through some of these beads and we're able to to separate out the the evs from the contaminants based on size however in recent months and actually years seeing as covid got in the way i've actually been uh, looking into a, a more novel way of purifying these evs instead of size exclusion which is called binder loops chromatography and uh, instead what happens is the the proteins go inside of the beads in the column and are bound up by a, an octylamine ligand within the core of these beads and the evs because they're too large can't fit inside the beads and flow out of the column and what we've actually found is that Firstly, we don't have to do spin filtration with this step. So we're able to not expose the EVs to that that harsh direct pressure of being forced into the filter and the, the centrifugal uh, forces. And we're also able to obtain uh, a lot more EVs because of that as well. And the, the process is actually a lot faster and we're able to, it seems, retain a lot more function from the EVs as well. And that's Although we, we don't necessarily have the data at the moment, we're still looking into it, we, we kind of speculate there might be some kind of protein corona around the EVs that's potentially preserved, which provides some additional function to the EVs when they're applied to various functional assays. Question found, here. Yes. Have you been able to uh, do, you know, SCM or TEM on them to see the structure of the EVs so they were in their we natural have. state? Yes. So actually, in this specific case, we've compared EVs uh, isolated by the size exclusion method to this binder loop method. And um, in the size exclusion method, what we've seen is the EVs display their typical sort of cup-shaped morphology as they do under TEM. And that's just due to the um, heavy metal ions that are used to, to visualize cells or EVs in, in this particular manner. But in size exclusion, it seems like a lot of the EVs actually aggregate together, clump together. And we can also see a lot of other um, contaminants in TEM images as well that sort of display is kind of black kind of grainy marks on the on the TEM image whereas with binder loop we actually see a, a much purer image we don't have this sort of grain and contaminants that can be seen within the image as well and instead of aggregation we can see singular EVs so again we don't necessarily have the evidence to support this but it's we have sort of speculated that potentially this could be something to do with the protein corona being preserved as well and that there's some sort of force or some sort of protective layer over the EVs that's preventing them from from aggregating that's preserved during binder loop chromatography as opposed to size exclusion. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Since you're doing cells in an in vitro you know, lab environment, what about in vivo? What if you were to take cells out and the associated fluid around them or just, you know, suck some interstitial fluid out of somebody or again, a bunch of yep. cells and yep. then filter for the EVs there. So you might get a much truer picture of what they're giving off. 
Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I have some colleagues at La Trobe University in uh, in Melbourne. A colleague of mine, Dr. Edward Willems, is is working on exactly that and actually using this spine dilute chromatography purification methods to try and purify EVs from plasma and from, from serum. Um, and you're absolutely right. You would see a much more representative snapshots of EVs that are released by a whole different plethora of cells instead of just a singular type that we are growing and and then harvesting from in vitro. So uh, yes, he's he's looking into that. And I guess one of the, the challenges that comes with um, purification of EVs from plasma serum is that the protein load that you get from those solutions is very, very high, much higher than what you would get from in vitro cell culture. And in fact, this purification method that I've been working on actually spawned out of high density cell culture that I was performing to obtain very high EV yield. And our traditional methods of, of size exclusion were just not able to cope with the very high protein uh, yields and, and very high EV yields. So we needed something that was much more high throughput um, to be able to cope with what these uh, high density cell culture techniques were producing. So because we were having some success with, with this particular method, uh, that's when uh, my colleague Edward stepped in and started to investigate how good it would be for serum and plasma purification as well. So, you know, what have you noticed is, you know, you said uh, vesicle production is heterogeneous. What's the approximate volume of production, at least in vitro? You know, for I know it varies, of course, depending on cell and et cetera, mm. but how many does the cell produce in a day approximately? How many does it take in? And then mm. I want to ask you about the heterogeneity of what it puts out. Sure. So in, in terms of how much a, a cell produces in a day, you're absolutely right to say that it does vary from cell to cell. One cell type could produce tens to hundreds of, of EVs in, in a day, whereas some may be sort of in, incredibly proliferative per se and produce a, a lot of EVs, a thousands of EVs in a day. From the cell lines that I work with, from culturing them over a sort of 48-hour period and then harvesting the cell supernatant and doing the purification after that, we tend to find that after that 48-hour period, if you're talking about how many a single cell might produce, maybe sort of in the thousand to tens of thousands region. So yeah, a single cell is is spitting out a lot of EVs in, in such a small space of time comparatively. Any estimate? Is it thousands, millions, any order of magnitude estimate? I'd say thousands to tens of thousands. I'd say more likely thousands that a, a single cell would would produce. But if you were talking about a large cell population and, and how much a cell population could produce, because of course, again, the amount of EVs are, are produced will be different depending on, on the cell. If I had about 50, 50 million cells, which is a, a, a typical amount, um, you would probably expect to achieve a about a sort of low 10 to the power of 11 EVs after a 48-hour period. So it's a lot of, uh, of very, very small particles, which even at that quantity, you have uh, little indication to see by the, the eye unless you do, obviously, TEM. Uh, the only indication you might get is, is a slightly more maybe turbid or, or opaque uh, fluid at the end of, uh, end of a process. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Has anyone observed how bacteria or viruses or fungi or yeast interact with EVs? You know, could you put it in a dish and 
you know, let's say you have some bacteria in a dish and mm-hmm. you have a known concentrate of EVs and you dump it in there with them, you know, along with some sugar and stuff. Observe what the, uh, you know, the bacteria are doing. Could you, you know, put like fluorescent compounds in the EVs or somehow yeah. figure out where they're going? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, in terms of the specific examples, bacteria and viruses and, and so on, it is, is not a particular area of, uh, of expertise of mine. But there are certainly studies that will monitor the, the uptake of EVs in such a manner, as you mentioned, uh, using fluorescent markers on EVs to monitor how they interact with, with bacteria and uh, with, with viruses as well. And the, it's an ongoing topic of, of research, I guess, that's, uh, I guess, very broad that we still don't really fully understand what mechanisms and and proteins regulate whether an EV is going to be taken up by a certain type of cell and what proteins on on an EV surface or what receptors are best for that EV uptake to occur and and how it differs between different cell types. And uh, I'm sure the same is true for for different bacteria and different viruses as well. So yes, certainly that type of research is, is going on, yeah. In terms of the um, the outer membranes of the EVs, do any look like capsids of viruses? The reason why I asked this weird question is I spoke to a guy uh, out of you know university in Utah where he said like mm-hmm. the arc gene in human cells not only it produces you know vesicles but it produces them where it looks like they have an exact capsid that looks similar to a virus. So I just wonder mm-hmm. if uh, in mm-hmm. looking at the EVs, could it be possible that some of them have you know capsid like you know outer membranes or enclosures? Sure. Um, you know, how, sure. what, what kind of heterogeneity do you see already? when you look at them. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in, in terms of looking at the EVs just themselves and the type of heterogeneity you see, well, EVs, first of all, adopt a, a very wide range of, of sizes. They can range from as small as the sort of 20 to 30 nanometer region up to thousands of, of nanometers, uh, sort of uh, 2,000 nanometers in size, which start to be uh, adopted by what are termed large oncosomes and uh, released by cancerous cells, as as sort of suggested by the name. So that can be noted just sort of by looking at, at the cells. In terms of a, a visualized sort of capsid on an EV, it's not an example that I'm I'm particularly familiar with if i'm honest i'd have to look into it more but i I mentioned earlier this this protein corona that that exists around an ev and again i'm I'm not really too sure whether this is something that can be uh, visualized in in terms of my overall experience in the ev field i'm I'm relatively junior but the yeah there is a a protein corona that exists um around an ev that serves as sort of a a semi-protective layer to it but also has this additional sort of functionality that's speculated to come with the EV itself and sort of provide provide some sort of additional functionality of, in terms of its interactions with uh, recipient target cells. So, um, I mean, do the membranes of the EVs, do they have ligands on them? Like, you know, is it possible mm-hmm. to look at the surface structure? You know, even though they're so small, what, what kind of surface features do they have that allow them to enter into other cells, you know, to bind to the right areas? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, absolutely. They, EVs themselves are really sort of a, uh, almost a, a snapshot of the cells that they're, they're derived from. So many of the, the proteins that exist on a, on a cell membrane, you would also expect to find on an EV itself. So yeah, the, the EV membrane contains various different sort of receptors and, and ligands, tetraspanins as well. And yeah, 
in, in terms of, of visualizing those um, proteins that exist on the membrane, there is work that's certainly being done. In fact, I, uh, I collaborate with a lab based, the uh, Rutherford Appleton Laboratories in, um, in Harwell in, in, in Oxfordshire in the, in the UK. And they have very recently been doing some research to try and uh, visualize the structure of her too on the on the surface of EV secreted by lung cancer cells. And they've been doing so using cryo electron microscopy. So a, a very, very uh, highly sensitive and highly detailed sort of technique for, for visualizing, well, mainly sort of larger structures, but they've been able to sort of refine their methods to be able to capture some really beautiful images of what the HER2 receptor looks like on the surface of, of an EV. So there are some techniques that, that are emerging to enable us to, to do just that and to, to visualize what the surface of, of an EV looks like. And, and then from there, depending on uh, what we know about the sort of chemical and physical makeup of the EV itself, we can potentially predict how the EV might interact with uh, a recipient cell um, and whether there, there might be sort of any hindrances that might come from, say, the, the charge of the, the EV membrane and the, the interaction of a particular receptor with a recipient cell and, and whether, in fact, the, the EV has this receptor in its membrane but actually it, it might not be functional whatsoever because of its because of its orientation or or as i mentioned the the sort of charge of the the ev itself and how how that might interact with the recipient cell so yeah there's there's certainly techniques out there to to do so and um yeah there's there's work starting to be done to uh yeah visualize the surface of an ev in more detail how much energy do you think and resources it takes to make an ev and could you calculate the total energy budget expenditure for a given cell in a 24-hour period? Something far beyond my uh, capabilities, I, I think. But yeah, it's. Uh, I, I would imagine there's certainly somebody out there that might be interested in, in such a thing. I, I have no idea, honestly, how much energy a, a cell would have to use to create an EV, but... It must be, I couldn't even begin to, to speculate, honestly, but it, it can't be much. When we're talking about a single cell producing thousands of EVs in, uh, in a day or in 24, 48-hour period, it's, uh, it, it surely can't be sort of kilojoules of energy. But I couldn't even begin to, to put my finger on an exact number of, of, uh, of how much and uh, you know, how much ATP expenditure and things like that and what type of nutrients a, a cell might, might need to do such a thing. Yeah, that, that sort of thing is, is a little bit beyond me, I think. That's okay. I was just curious about it. In terms of the payload, if you have a population of EVs, how do you parse out, again, the heterogeneity in terms of payload, in terms of let's maybe membrane composition, et cetera? Like what has been observed about a population of EVs? Well, yeah, I mean, as, as you mentioned, the, an EV population is uh, incredibly heterogeneous and it's, there, there's uh, a whole, there's, there's a ton of studies out there that have looked at loads of different cell lines and be it sort of healthy cell lines, cancerous cell lines, you name it. The EV populations have uh, been extensively characterized through uh, mass spectrometry and various sort of flow cyto cytometry methods and going sort of 
even further in detail, we're looking at now sort of single vesicle characterization of how each vesicle differs from one another and what purpose it, it might serve outside the outside the cell. It's honestly, it's it really varies, and it's it's still something that we're we're trying to understand, or, or why a cell population produces so many different types of EVs, and and, and what these EV functions are. It's, it's astounding, really extensive. One such sort of study that that I've been involved with in in recent years has been looking at the heterogeneity of EVs produced by uh, ovarian cancer cells and is actually one that has been referred to by Dennis Noble on your podcast previously and in, in this particular study we we looked at the heterogeneity of EVs produced by ovarian cancer cells and we separated the EVs out into various different uh, subpopulations based on their size and we then characterized the the EVs in each of these subpopulations through techniques as i just mentioned flow cytometry and uh, mass spectrometry and what we found is that even within these different subpopulations there were different proteins that were expressed that then belonged to so different families of proteins that had different functions so for example there were larger evs that seemed to express a a much higher uh, amount of, of adhesion proteins uh, and then smaller ones that strangely were ha- possessed proteins involved in metabolism and seemed to uh, have a, a phenotype which was much more synonymous with um, types of vesicles called uh, exomeres, which are really only starting to be characterized over the last couple of years. These are very, very small extracellular vesicles, sub-30 nanometer particles. And and the function of these exomeres still isn't fully established, really. The the function of extracellular vesicles is is still heavily under scrutiny overall, but the exomeres even more so. But we we actually found uh, in, in our work, in comparison to some of the exomere characterization that's going on that these very small subpopulations were synonymous with what um, other studies had had seen so it at least sort of seems that even with our ovarian cancer there seems to be some sort of crossover in uh, these particular phenotypes of these evs with those that other cells cells produce but uh yeah just breaking down based on on size there there seem to be a whole different variety of proteins that are expressed among different subpopulations of evs and thereby it it seems that different you would assume that different sizes of evs had different functions whether that's the the um, determining factor that a cell uses to try and segregate out an EV functional um, array, so to speak, is, I mean, entirely under under scrutiny. I mean, if I were to speculate, uh, I would say that that's probably not the determining factor that a, that a cell would use. Rather, it's probably much more likely to be a, a combination of various different proteins or even a biogenetic process within the cell that determines what the ultimate function of an EV is outside of a cell environment. And yeah, the the field is still very much in the process of, of trying to come up with some firm answers as to what this cellular heterogeneity means, where it arises from, and how we can harness it. If you observe, I don't know if anyone's been able to observe this somehow, but EV is entering or exiting a cell. Mm. I know they're tiny compared to the cell, and do they just bleb off of the membrane? And when they enter, do they enter in certain areas of the cell, or do they enter yeah. all over the place? Are there you know, clathrin-coated pits or receptors yeah. that are just all over the cell when they enter? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, this this has been observed. Yeah, there's some there's there's quite a lot of studies, really nice studies um, out now that have used super resolution um, microscopy to monitor the release and uptake of EVs by host and, and, and recipient cells. And in in terms of uh, how an EV is is taken up, there's uh, quite yeah quite a few studies out that are looking into this, and it seems that it it really does vary in terms of the the recipient cell that's taking them up uh, and also potentially the proteins that uh, are on the ev surface and and likely also on the the recipient cell membrane as well evs have been noted to be sort of taken up by sort of endocytosis by sort of a, a, a phagocytic almost like process even um some some evs have fused with the the cell membrane themselves and just released their their cargo into into the cell so it, it really does vary you also mentioned um clathrin coated pits as well it's it's a another um, method of, of EV uptake that's been been monitored. Yeah, it, it really does vary in terms of whether EVs sort of cluster to a particular site with, within a cell. That's uh, not something I, I'm entirely familiar with, but at least from the, the evidence that I've seen, that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, it seems that EVs generally tend to spread out over the cell. And if they were to cluster to a specific site, my, my guess to, to that uh, interaction would be uh, depending on the the ligands and, and receptors once again that are, are present with on an EV surface and on the cell surface. I just wonder if there's preferred places that they enter into cells and preferred places where they exit from them, mm. or if it's kind of all over the place. And yeah, you know, is the is the cell membrane like a roiling mass of entry and exit, and is it like a busy port? You know, yeah. if you imagine it, what sure. would it look like? Sure. Yeah. No. It's it, that's a really, really interesting question, and um, it's something that I think would be really beautiful to to try and see. Really, if we could, if we could sort of construct a three D model of a cell and and somehow monitor sort of in, in real time where the EVs were being released from. Like, like you say, whether there's like a, a point in a cell that's that's static that uh, a lot of EVs are being released from, and then likewise in a recipient cell, whether there's a specific site that's that's specific to to EV uptake uh, would be would be really beautiful to see and really interesting to see as well. And and in, indeed, whether these sort of sites were to to move around the the cell instead of being static as well would be interesting to see. But in, in terms of EV biogenesis itself, we know that this sort of happens in two main ways. The first is through actually the the endolysosomal pathway, which is also responsible for the production of of lysosomes, which stay within the cell itself. But what essentially happens in this process is that the cell membrane invaginates producing uh, an endosome inside the cell and then this endosome also invaginates and what's produced then inside of here are what's termed intraluminal vesicles and this is is actually what has previously been termed an exosome in its earliest phase this endosome that contains all these intraluminal vesicles then traffics to the cell membrane fuses with it and then releases these intraluminal vesicles which then once they're released become termed as as exosomes the other main way is that the cell membrane itself actually sort of 
pinches off and, and forms what's traditionally been termed as, as a microvesicle. And these are typically uh, slightly larger in terms of their average size to, to exosomes. But sort of based on just those two different biogenetic pathways, one would assume that this, this process of producing EVs could potentially happen anywhere within a cell membrane and anywhere within a cell. But in, indeed, whether there is a, a particular type of protein or a, a cluster of different proteins that uh, controls where EVs are released from and uh, and then where they're, they're taken up within a cell and, and how the cell membrane could potentially be organized to accept EVs would be something really uh, interesting to see. Um, but it's, it's not something that I'm, uh, I'm particularly aware of whether that's occurred already within the field, but certainly with the, the technologies that are sort of up and coming and starting to be used within the field, it's potentially something that we could start to see within, within the next few years. Yeah, do we know where um, EVs go once they enter into a cell? Do they travel to a certain location for disassembly, or does the, just the lysosome like bump up against them? And you know, mm-hmm. I mean, well, first of all, do they enter the cell with their outer membranes intact, or is it more like a virus where they empty their cargo inside? Yeah, if they enter intact again, does the lysosome like pull up next to them and enter yeah. the content? Sure. Yeah. Actually, I think it, it it varies, and this is kind of coming back to what I was saying about EV uptake. Is that there's various different ways in which EVs are taken up into the cell, and in in some of those ways, the EVs are internalized into the cell in in a similar manner in to which they're they're released. They enter in in an endosome once more, and then really, it, I guess it just kind of depends what the the destiny of of those um, EVs is. In, in fact, we prior to the sort of evolution of this EV. EV fields that's now sort of more uh, focused on the various different physiological functions that EVs play within uh, within normal homeostasis and and actually uh, the other arm which is looking into harnessing EVs as a, a therapeutic delivery mechanism. EVs were actually considered to be the waste mechanism waste disposal mechanism uh, of a cell and, and they still are the one of the formation routes of evs as i mentioned is through the endolysosomal system so it was always sort of assumed up until actually the 1990s really when when the one of the first major functional studies of evs was published was was that evs were the waste disposal mechanism of the cell so and that function hasn't gone away so there is is a major arm of um ev biology which is is dedicated to waste disposal so it's it's very likely that some evs could be released from cells and then be taken up by another and degraded by by that cell for what purpose that that serves it's not sure maybe the the cell needs whatever nutrients that are within those evs for its own growth instead of some more complex cell signaling function. Yeah, I, I, I guess it, it really varies. But in, in terms of something outside of, of EV degradation and, and fusion with, with lysosomes and so on, which we do see, we, we know that, again, EVs, once they enter into a cell, sort of traffic through the sort of endo endolysosomal system and are can be targeted to sort of different organelles in, inside a cell. And the EVs themselves can, can sort of be, be deconstructed and in, in their cargo then used in sort of whatever destiny the producer cell has sort of designed for the EV itself, whether it's uh, involvement in some sort of cell signaling process, as I've kind of alluded to, or or, or otherwise. It's, yeah, it, it really varies. EVs are created by a given cell. Do you think that the cell knows 
how to create EVs in such a way as to target specific cells, or do you think they're just put out like just in the hopes of like a you know a note in a bottle and yeah. see that someone will find it? Yeah, sure. Um, again, I, I don't think it's entirely established, entirely ki- clear yet. I would, I would say uh, yes. That that cells, there, there is some sort of genetic or some sort of sort of dogma that governs what a, an EV's destiny is is going to be, and that uh, therefore a, a cell knows how to produce a certain EV to perform a specific function. But again, as as I sort of mentioned, there seems to be again this large role of evs in sort of waste disposal and i guess that sort of falls under the same uh, it, it can be regarded as a function the the cell determines what is waste and what what serves as a particular function and and how to target to a particular cell whether that's by making sure that a certain type of protein is is trafficked to the endosomal or, or the cell membrane itself during ev formation or whether it's a, a particular cargo which can uh, steer uh, EVs towards a, a particular site. I'm I would speculate to say that that a cell does know how to do that, but the exact mechanisms by which uh, they do are, are still being researched. Well, very good, Scott. It's been a, a good call, and we're at the end, but. Uh, where can people find out more information about your work? Absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Scott Bonner on LinkedIn. Uh, I occasionally post on there, so everything that's going on with me. Um, you can find more information about me as well on the Oxford University website. I've also published uh, some recent work with some colleagues that, that I mentioned earlier based at the Rutherford Apple Laboratories in, in Harwell in the UK. And that's uh, to do with the mechanisms of action of uh, EGFR, tyrosine kinase receptors on EVs themselves and uh, how those uh, EGFR receptors end up in, in EVs and uh, why these are particularly important for cancer growth and development. Uh, those were published in, in uh, cells in uh, November and December last year. So yeah, if, uh, if, if you'd be interested in those, I recommend uh, taking a read. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where you can find more about me. Well, very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Scott. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Richard. I, I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.